Amen. And he is a good, good father. You can remember that line um, as we go through this text this morning. He is perfect in all of his ways. Just kind of let that resonate in the, in the back of your mind. We are going back to Romans this morning. And we have taken uh, a, um, the break during April as we were in Holy Week and Easter. Um, and that first Sunday following Easter, we were in John's Gospel. But now we're going back to Romans, uh, the power of the gospel. Um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And uh, I hope that by the time we get to September and finish this book, that you will have at least, if not several other verses, at least that verse memorized. So I want to remind you, just uh, as we, we get back into this book, Romans uh, is broken up into three major sections. And we have just finished one of those major sections, chapters 1 through 8. Paul gives this explanation of redemption, this explanation of the full plan of salvation, this grace that God offers. And he's done it brilliantly. In fact, it's considered one of the most accurate, most theological, complete, detailed explanations of the gospel of Jesus, this redemption story through Jesus in all of Scripture. And then um, we have this second section, which is chapters 9, 10, and 11. The third section is 12 through 16. But today we begin the second section in chapter 9. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. It sounds as if Paul is going back and repeating what he had just said. But even though it sounds that way, is it not exactly that way? For you see, the, the first part, 1 through 8, was an explanation of the gospel. But as we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, these chapters are an exhibition of God's grace. It's a demonstration in the terms of people. In fact, he uses Israel as an example. And he shows how God works in humanity through this plan of salvation as he redeems and saves through Jesus Christ. And you remember, as we looked at these first eight chapters, we know that there is absolutely nothing that we can do ourselves to save ourselves. There is nothing. God is in control. He's behind it all. And there's times that as we've gone through these eight chapters that we've thought to ourselves, wait a minute. Now, what did he say? How do I understand that? What is Paul saying here and now? We've looked at election and predestination. We've looked at this call that God has in our life to be redeemed. He is the one who calls. He is the one who saves. And now Paul puts the spotlight on Israel as a demonstration of how God works. And I hope that as we go through these chapters and especially this chapter 9 over the next two weeks, that we will all learn from what Paul is having to say 
about the grace of God. I'm going to read these passages along as we go through this morning instead of all of this passage, 1 through 13, up front. Uh, But let me pray first. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for all that you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so Paul begins here, and this is, this is kind of a, a sad state when you think about Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. He is a, a set-aside nation. Uh, they have advantages and other things among them, and Israel is regarded as God's chosen people, a position that God has placed them in. And Paul acknowledges who Israel is in these verses. But he also acknowledges that they are far, far away from what God intended. They are far away from God, despite all of the possibilities that they enjoyed, all of the advantages that they enjoyed, they were long, far away from God. Now, Paul doesn't come at this as an antagonist. He does not come at this with accusations. He actually comes to this place as he begins to talk about Israel and what it means in God's work in humanity. And he begins this chapter with a description of personal anguish that has welled up inside of him. This is where he is at. So I want us to look first at these first four verses, 1 through 4a, and see what Paul is saying. This uh, angst that he has, but this compassion that he has for Israel. He begins, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could not wish that myself, for I could wish that myself would be accused, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And so, Paul has been preaching, he has been teaching, he is now in Rome, he's writing this letter, he has preached Christ crucified. Christ is at the center of everything for Paul. But the Jews have been stirred up by his ministry. They are antagonistic to the Christians. Paul has preached the personhood of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, coming to earth. Here he has made it clear that he's hurting for his friends. He's hurting for those that he loves, those that he has seen turn away, that have rejected Christ and who Christ is. There is real hurt in these verses that Paul is writing. These aren't crocodile tears. He's not saying, oh yes, I love you, and then tearing them to pieces. 
he is actually saying, look, my conscience is for you. I wish that you could come to Christ. I wish you would understand. I, I, I want you to understand. Even the Holy Spirit confirms my anxiousness. It's deep. There's great sorrow here, Paul says. Some of us can understand that great sorrow of, of longing for someone to come to Christ. Many of us this morning could name either children or grandchildren or family members or friends or neighbors that we know have no relationship with Christ. Oh, they may say that I know God or I know of God, but they have never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Or they surrendered their life and they've gone by the way of the world and they've walked away from that commitment, that uh, surrender, placing God first in all things. We can understand that heartache in many ways this morning. I would dare say most of us can because we have seen loved ones that are hurting, those that are in destructive mode, danger mode, despair, even those that are near death in despair and wondering what is next. Paul is in this position. This anguish is deep. He even says, I wish that I could be separated from Christ. Think about that. That I could be separated, put in their place so that they could come to Christ. Fortunately, that didn't happen. That's not a, uh, something that can happen to him because Christ has him. He has him firmly. But these words are deep for Paul. And so he begins with this recognition deep from his heart. And he wants us to understand. He wants us to see what God is doing and how God works. He never comes at this with bitter words, but he sees their separation, and it hurts him deeply. We, as Paul, can speak truth in love. Some of you may have heard the story of a man whose friend was worshiping in another church, and he said to him one day as they met for lunch, he said, I heard that y'all have replaced your pastor he said, why did y'all do that? And his friend said, well, the pastor kept telling us we were going to hell. And we just got tired of it. And so we brought in a new pastor. He said, well, how's that working for you? What's the new pastor saying? He said, well, the new pastor's telling us we're going to hell too. He said, but what's the difference then? You, you fired one to bring in another one and hearing the same message. He said, oh, no, it's different. He said, the first pastor told us we were going to hell, and he just kind of acted like he was glad of it. The second pastor is telling us we're going to hell, and it seems like his heart is breaking for us. And that's where Paul's at. Paul's heart's breaking because he sees Israel, who says... Jehovah God, and we've got all of these rituals, and we're worshiping in the temple, and we're praying, but he knows that they do not know the Messiah. They do not know Christ. And so, Paul now comes, and he says, 
Look at the Israelites. Look at them because they have so many advantages that they fail to take a, a look at the Jews in which it just seems like they failed to take advantage of all of these things that God gave them. Look at verse 4b through verse 5. To whom belongs, he says, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of, as sons and the glory and the, co and the um, covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. God blessed forever. Amen. Paul gives these eight examples of these advantages that the Israelites had. The first is that they were chosen people of God, he says. There was no doubt they were set aside. They were God's chosen people. They were separated as a nation from other nations. The descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes coming from Jacob, we know that these are his people. Exodus 4.22, Behold, Israel is my son, God says. And so he dealt, especially dealt, with the nation of Israel as his people. Secondly, this advantage the Jews had was that glory was given to them. And this means the Shekinah glory, the glory that went before them in the desert, the glory that uh, engulfed the tabernacle as they went through the desert. God's presence, the glory of God with them. And then centuries later, as this beautiful temple that Solomon built, this beautiful temple for God, the glory of God came into the Holy of Holies there. And the people knew that God's presence was there. The glory of God was resting in the temple in the holiest of place. They had the glory of God. Third, the Jews also had the covenants. Paul points out that these covenants were made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Moses and David, and that God had committed himself to a nation to do what he would do. Every covenant, everything that God said, he would uphold, he would back. Fourth, Paul says that they had the law, and they treasured the law. It was one of the dearest greatest things that they felt that God had given them was the law, and it still is to, the, to Israel, to the Jews. And by the way, God gave the law to Moses, not to Charlton Heston. He just, by the way, <laughs> didn't. So. Fifth, Paul says the Jews had temple worship. Not only did they have the law, but they had a place that God had called them. God had called them to erect the, the tabernacle in the desert as they traveled to worship there. He had instituted worship, these gatherings of the people. And then when this beautiful building was built in Jerusalem, when he called Israel together to worship, they worshiped the Lord God in these places. Six, the Jews had promises God had promised both through the Old Testament and as we see in the New Testament writings that 
he was God, that he would reign, that there would be a king, there would be a Messiah that would come from the lineage of David, that Jerusalem would be the center, and that God would fulfill all of his promises. And folks, any promise that has not been yet fulfilled will be fulfilled before he returns. Seventh, Paul says the Jews had the patriarchs, and I've already mentioned some, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and they are still uplifted as the patriarchs of the faith of Judaism. And then eighth, and finally, it is interesting what Paul does. He says the supreme blessing was that Jesus himself, the Messiah, came from Israel. This promised Messiah that was to come from the lineage of David has been fulfilled, Paul says. This is his statement of the deity of Christ. He came from them, not to them. In other words, Christ didn't belong just to them, but Christ came from them for the world, Paul is saying. Christ, he, Christ, is God over all to be praised forever. Now, this statement has been read many different ways, and there are those that say, oh, this is just a doxology, and uh, the way it should be read is God be blessed and praised forever. But if you go to the manuscripts, if you go to the most the most ancient and um, those best manuscripts, and we pull out the original language, this is the way this verse reads. And it can't be overlooked. Christ is God over all, blessed and praised forever. And when you see the verse that way, you can see that Paul is calling the deity of Christ, that he is God. Christ is God over all, blessed and praised forever. And he is saying, look, the, the Israelites, has had, they've had all of these advantages. Look at this list, he says, of advantages that they have had, but yet they have rejected him. They have violently been anti-Christian. They do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul says there's, there's so much evidence here. And Paul has to be looking at what's next. You know, the, this letter was written around 62 A.D., and... He knows what's to come. He knows what Jesus had said about Jerusalem and what would happen. And he knows that the, uh, the Jews in Rome uh, would, would come to a breaking point to where Jerusalem would be leveled, the temple be, would be leveled, and the place burned. Yet despite, Paul says, all of these advantages, with knowing all of these promises, with knowing the covenants that God had given, Israel had proved to be faithless in Christ. And the, the apostle's heart is breaking. 
Now, <clears throat> though he shows that they have been faithless, the question would be, has God failed? Did God fail Israel because Israel was lost? And you say, that sounds odd. That sounds, how could God fail? There are those that believe God failed, that God failed Israel, that he was chose them, and, and yet not all of them would come to faith in his son, Jesus. We even have that today with the Armenians that believe that God cannot hold on to salvation, that you can lose your salvation, and God can't be faithful in holding on to what he has given. Paul answers these questions, these hard questions that often we even struggle with. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah struggled, others struggled with God's and how God would work within humanity, within society, within the community. And in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says this, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens is higher, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. Paul is reminding us of the sovereignty of God in this, this chapter, as we will see this week and next week. He is reminding us that we may not understand exactly how God works, and we may say, and it may look like God has failed in some way, but, but God has not. See, so often what happens is this. We look at what God is doing, and we say, Well, God, you know, maybe if you would do it this way, or maybe if you would go this direction, I really think this would work better, God. I think I know better, God. No, we don't really say that, that I know better. But that's what we often insinuate when we tell God, this is the direction I want to go, this is what I want to do, and I just want you to bless this God. This is what I want. But God is persistent with us because he wants this relationship to be about him. He wants the relationship to bear all things for him. He wants us to work out the problems and the issues that we face in him and through him. And so when Paul continues this passage, when, when we look at verses 6 through 13, Paul gives us three principles for us to look at, to see as he uses the Israelites, but you can transfer that. You can, all of these principles are for us too as we walk with Christ. And so he begins these principles. The first is salvation is never based on the natural advantage. Look at verse 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. There's that word. Has God failed? No. For they are not all Israel who are descendants 
from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. Think about that. If the Jew is hearing or reading what Paul has written here, I mean, it would cause some angst within them. Because Paul is saying, it is not the natural advantage. It is not that all of Israel is a descendant of Abraham or Isaac. Of course, we know, I'm sorry, of Jacob. We know that Jacob's name was Israel. He wrestled with the angel, and after that, God called him Israel. And so Jacob was a prince. Israel means a prince with God. And he made him into a prince. And his lineage there became Israel, the tribes that God set, set apart for his purpose. And he even talks about Abraham's descendants here and says even the greatest patriarch of all, even some of his descendants are not children of God. So we draw the conclusion that salvation was never based on heritage or inherited just because your father or mother were a Christian does not make you one. I've asked people before as I've talked to them about Christ to tell me their story, and often they will begin, oh, my mom and dad made sure I was in church every day. Every Sunday I was in church. I, I was in church all through my formative years. And I will say to them, but that's not what I ask you. I ask you to tell me about your experience. You see, none of us enter heaven on the curtails of, uh, of our parents or our grandparents or anyone else. It is a personal relationship. You can have as much Bible knowledge, and, um, and I would say that there are many that have a lot of Bible knowledge but have never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. There are those that attend church and worship, those that attend Bible study, but they have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's not, it's not the lineage. It's not the heritage. You don't inherit it. You, you don't get it by osmosis. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and making Christ Lord over your life, surrendering your life to him. And so it is not by natural advantage. And that brings us to the second principle that he has here, and that is God's salvation is always based on divine promise. It's always based on divine promise. Look what he says in 7b through, through 9. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah 
shall have a son, and Sarah shall have a son. So this takes us back to chapter 17 and 18 of Genesis. And, and we know that Abraham and Sarah, um, they are childless, she is barren, and the only way that she is going to have a child at age 90 is for it to be a miraculous event, that God is going to open her womb and have a child, a baby. But here's what happens. You see, Sarah, in chapter 17, or 16, comes to Abraham and says, you know, God said we're going to have this child. There's going to be this heritage, this lineage from you. This isn't going to happen. Um, you just need to do this yourself. You need to take this on yourself. And I'll tell you what we can do. I can give you my handmaid, and uh, this Egyptian servant you can lay with and have a child, and therefore we can fulfill the promise of God that God has made with you that there will be a child. Well, we know what happens. Ishmael is born. And so Abraham brings Ishmael to God and says, Look, God, here's the boy. You can read it. Look at chapter 18. I'm paraphrasing. Here's the boy. So go ahead, God, bless him. And God looks at him and says, I ain't blessing him. He's not the divine promise. He's not the divine promise. We know that Isaac is born when Ishmael is 13. And, and we look at these boys and we see and, and we read and we know that God has said, God has said this it's not about inheritance. This is not about natural, natural advantage. It's interesting that so often we think, we worry, we have this consternation in our very soul about what God is doing. And God says, look, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. This is my will, my purpose. I know what I'm doing. And he's given this divine promise and fulfills it in every way. And then we come to this third principle and this is probably the hardest one for us to understand. And that principle is this. Salvation never takes any notice of whether we are good or bad. And we say that's not fair. That's not fair, God, that you would look at it that way. I've spent all of my life doing well, and here someone on their deathbed conversion gets to go to heaven. That's just not fair, God. God says... It's not about the good or bad. It's about his will and his purpose. Look at how he finishes this section in verses 10 through 13. He says, And now, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, 
When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice, please hear that, church, because of his choice, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. We can struggle over these words. It's hard to hear. But before these boys could make a choice, before they could commit anything, choice, good or bad, God said to their mother, the younger, the elder, will serve the younger, implying that this is not about inheritance, though both of these boys would be made into nations. Both of these boys would grow in the sight of God. One would be honored and the other not. But when you look at Jacob, Jacob schemed. Jacob was in many ways not very lovable as he was growing up. You have Esau, on the other hand, that was a hard worker, one who provided for his family. But yet, in God's economy, in God's choice, Paul reminds us that God chose Jacob over Esau. And we even hear that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, and that greats, how could that be? But you see, when the word is used here, hate, we need to understand how God is using this word, how Paul is lifting this word up to us in the Old Testament text that's quoted. Think of it this way. Do you remember Luke 14, 26? Anybody? Okay. So, this is the verse. Except that a man hate his father and mother, brother and sister, wife and children, houses and land, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who said this? Jesus. Jesus says, unless we hate. Wait a minute, Marty. Isn't the fifth commandment, love your father and your mother? Yes, it is. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he actually calling me to hate my brothers, my sisters, my mom, my dad, my family? What he is saying is, you love them less than you love me. You place me first. And that's exactly what God did with Jacob and Esau. He loved Jacob, as the scripture says. And it was his plan through Jacob's lineage for the nation of Israel to flow, ultimately for the Messiah to come. Esau, on the other hand, was not 
that chosen one. And God is showing us that he is in control, that he is over all, that he is sovereign in all things. It is his plan of salvation. It is his work as he calls individuals to faith in Jesus Christ. And whether we like it or not, not all will be called. Not all will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it's God's plan. It's God's work. It's God's call. That's hard for us sometimes to understand. Salvation is never based on natural advantages. Never. Salvation is always based on the promise of God. And his promises are always true. And that is exactly why we are exhorted to believe the word of God. To believe his word. And to act on it. And it is this third promise or principle. Salvation takes no notice of whether we are good or bad. That's hard. But has God failed? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. God has not failed. In fact, our call is to look reverently to God in all that he has done, all that he has prescribed. God is in charge. God is in control. God is sovereign in all things at all times. And sometimes that's hard, folks. The cause of our humanity and who we are and how we live is hard. But Paul's going to talk through, as we go through chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's going to give us this understanding of the harmony of God, the sovereignty of God, that God's not done yet. God is still working. God is still calling. God is God. And in Jesus Christ, his plan is fulfilled. I'm going to stop there. And pick up next week. You know, sometimes you watch these uh, shows and at the end of the show it says, to be continued. Well, that's, that's what's coming next. To be continued. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you are sovereign in all things. We thank you for Jesus, your son. We thank you, Father, that the choice is not made by whose we are, whether we are rich or poor, the skin color. None of that matters to you. Father, you are sovereign. You are the one that calls. You are the one that has elected us and called us into faith. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the work that was done on the cross through Jesus, our Lord. And so, Father, this morning we acknowledge who you are, and what you have done. It's not about that 
past. It's about the present and our surrender to you, making you Lord over our life. May it be so, Father. Even today, may it be so. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.